Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, July 16th. It's been a while since I was on one of these Mini Break podcasts. Of course, a huge shout out to Vicki Duvall for always coming through with her Wednesday episodes, ensuring that there wasn't a, you know, a five, six day gap between episodes here on the podcast. But not only has it been such a busy time, so many storylines to navigate, to monitor from throughout the ten- professional tennis world, uh, but it's been a really busy time for us here at Cracked Rackets as well. Of course, we were so fortunate over this past weekend to host our second Cracked Rackets Open of the summer. This time, we were able to up the scale of the event. A shout out to our friends at North Central High School here in Indianapolis. For those of you followers who are from the Midwest, whether you played in the Midwest growing up or you're a parent of children in the Midwest, you know North Central High School, the host school for the Midwest closed, uh, one of the premier, if not the mere the premier event of the junior tennis calendar for players from the Midwest. Uh, And so we had access to 30 courts there. We had access to the six brand new Butler outdoor courts as well. And because of that, we were able to have a 256 person event, 128 men, 128 women. Now, of course, uh, you know, it's always going to be difficult to pull off an event like that. There are always going to be logistical challenges and it's going to take so much effort on the part of all the tournament organizers. It's going to take commitment and buying and from the players as well. But given we're in the midst of a global pandemic, given we're in the midst of obviously COVID-19 still, uh, numbers still spiking throughout the country, it meant uh, we had to put that much more work into our efforts to ensure the safety and health of every participant, every parent on site, every volunteer who helped us along the way. A huge shout out to the NJTL crew, Dax Lowry, and everyone for helping us on Friday and Saturday, or excuse me, on Saturday and Sunday, uh, as well as just helping us with the event uh, throughout the entire weekend, but you know, that's what we had to do. We had to ensure that everyone on site was wearing masks. If you weren't wearing a mask, you were kindly asked, hey, please put your mask on. It's not for you. It's for all of us so that the event doesn't get shut down because there is an ordinance in Marion County, which is where we are to be wearing masks. And I will say one of my biggest takeaways, and again, this is just a little bit of tangent before we get into today's episode, but one of my biggest takeaways was how accommodating just every person at the event was. It's so clear. Uh, We all miss competitive tennis, whether that be as a fan, whether you be the professional tennis players. And of course, we were just down in Miami for the Altex Steislinger exhibition in Nicholasville for the Young King Scholarship Tennis event. Got the chance to talk to 16 of the top professional players, men's and women's in the country. Uh, and, you know, they're anxious to return to competitive action. Of course, they want it to happen in a safe fashion. But the energy on the grounds this weekend, it's so clear. All of these players so desperate to get back out on the court to show off their stuff 
to show off, you know, all of the hard work, all of the training that goes into being a tennis player. They want to, you know, they want that to show itself, all of that hard work. They want it to manifest itself in successful results on the court. And so, you know, all of this is my way of saying a huge shout out to all of the players, the parents, because they were so accommodating as well. Everyone was responsible. Everyone took, uh, you know, responsibility for their own actions. It was a self, you know, accountability amongst one another as well. It was a trust system. I am trusting you to stay safe, to do all of the things that you need to do from your end. I will do all of the things on my end. And hey, let's communicate to one another. If someone's not feeling well, let's be, you know, precaution is the key. It's always better to be more safe, to be more paranoid about things, to ensure everything's wiped down, scorecards, balls, you know, two uh, two balls for each player so they have separate balls to serve with the entire time. All of these little things uh, that, again, went into ensuring we could put on a safe event and, you know, ensure the safety and health to the best of our ability of all of the participants. Of course, again, the reason I bring that up, all of that hard work meant that we did not have time to do the mini break podcast on Monday or Tuesday, uh, but we're back here this week because it's Thursday, and that means it's another edition of Getting to the Point with our friends Mark Aerosmith and Andrew Golub uh, from Aerobar, and of course, you know Aerobar is a great way to start your day. It is you, you just know you're putting the right sort of stuff in your body, the right nutrients, the right sort of energy boost you need to, again, uh, get your day started to ensure that you are going to be maximally productive to you have the nutrition you need and you know you're not going to feel too heavy right it's not an omelet station it's not heavy pancakes or waffles or you know that bowl of cereal and if you're like me and you're sneaky lactose intolerant but you won't admit it to yourself yet because you just enjoy cereal and ice cream and cheese and things like that too much you don't have to worry about those issues with aerobar again it's a delightful, delicious way to start your day. The only tennis-specific energy bar available, whether it's uh, cinnamon, honey, oat, chocolate chip flavor. Again, it's what got me through our 10 days of the road. Every morning, I'd go for my run, but before I did, I had to wolf down my aero bar, and it was a delicious, you know, you're, you're not going to realize that there's so many good nutrients in it. You're not going to realize there's more potassium than a banana, and you're not going to realize there's no fake sugars or any of that uh, because it's already so delicious. And so, you know, again, if you're not already, go order yourself some aero bars. Go to aerobar.com. Use our promo code CRACKED15 to get 15% off. At the very least, support our friends at Aerobar because these episodes we've been doing on Thursdays here, these getting to the point episodes, I mean, the guests Mark and Andrew have been able to secure for us. It just gets better and better. We've had people like Michael Russell, Jay Berger, Richard John Menzing, Bjorn Fertangelo. Uh, you know, again, I, I could keep going. And, you know, today's guest lives up to those standards. Ivan Barron was our other guest. I didn't want to leave anyone out. And today, you know, the Yes, let's keep rocking and rolling as we are joined by a man who maybe has contributed more to the game of college tennis over the past 30 years than anyone from within the sport. He was someone who played his time at Mississippi State. He went on to coach a national junior champions uh, in Georgia, I believe Georgia uh, Perimeter. I apologize if I butchered that pronunciation, but from there he becomes the assistant at Notre Dame, then goes off to the University of Alabama, and he is now the head coach of the Princeton University men's tennis team. Of course, I'm talking about Billy Pate, who joins us on the show today to, of course, talk about the importance of nutrition and health and fitness in the modern game of tennis, how those values, the importance of uh, nutrition, fitness, how they've changed and how it's become even more valuable as the game of tennis has modernized. Uh, But of course, I have to give, so that's part of the conversation as it always is here on Getting to the Point, but I have to give a huge shout out to Mark and Andrew. I definitely 
did a little bit of poaching in this interview. And it's because in Billy Pate, you have a guy who not only familiar with everything going on in the game of college tennis right now, but has seen college tennis evolve over the past 30 years, is a member of the ITA uh, board of directors and can speak to, you know, the impact of this COVID-19 global pandemic, the financial impact on college sports broadly, but then of course, how that impact influences college tennis as well. And so we talk about all of those things and more, of course, I had to ask him, you know, how is he feeling about the state of his Princeton men's tennis team program? They were 14-4 and four when the season ended, as many of you may remember. Uh, this year's ITA men's college tennis rankings featured five Ivy League teams in the top 25 uh, for the first time in NCAA College 1, or I should say in Division 1 men's tennis history. Uh, so that was a really cool moment, and we talked to Billy about that and so much more. So I wanted you to keep all those things in mind. Of course, these episodes brought to you by our friends at Aerobar. I also want to quickly remind you that these mini breaks are brought to you all day in day out due to the support we get these mini breaks are made possible due to the support we get uh, from our friends at Midwest Sports and Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers for more than 20 years by offering a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match they also have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available for shipping directly from their automated warehouse to your front door they value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. And maybe you're a little bit rusty. You don't exactly know what your skills on the court was. I used to think, oh, I can scatter around the court. I'm a great defensive player. I'm great at turning defense into offense. And given my lifetime of service in doubles as well, I'm also, you know, if I don't mind saying, pretty good at moving forward and knifing off that volley. That's no longer the case. All of those skills you play 12 times since 2017, turns out you're not going to be the tennis player you once were. Nevertheless, I know that when I'm getting my racket strung, if I need a tension adjustment, or maybe my frame's just not what it is anymore, I can turn to that staff at Midwest Sports because they're intimately familiar with all of the equipment and can help me find that perfect racket, perfect shoe, or perfect clothing that is sure to put me ahead of the competition. Their selections of equipment are consistently first to market, and they pride themselves in stocking their warehouse with the newest products at the lowest prices. You can find all of these products, all of these killer prices by going to their website, MidwestSports.com. Once you're there, you're going to want to order yourself up, up some stuff. We can save another additional 15% by using our promo code CR15. You'll also get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, as well as a can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Midwest Sports wanting to ensure you have everything you need to make your return to the tennis court a successful one. So go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. Again, we are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can do is ask you to support them as well. All right. With that being said, enough chit-chat, enough of an intro. You came here for an interview. So with that in mind, let's get to our episode, our latest edition of Getting to the Point with Princeton men's tennis head coach, Billy Pate. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
Joining us on the podcast today is a man whose life has truthfully been dedicated to the game of college tennis. He started off his playing years at Mississippi State. He then proceeded through multiple levels of the coaching circuit to where he now has ended up as the head coach of the Princeton men's tennis team. Billy Pate, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you for all you have done for the game of college tennis. How are you doing today? You're too kind, Alex. Thank you for having me today. It's great to be here, especially during uh, this unusual time in our in our lives, right? But um, we're forging ahead and just, just thankful to, to be here and in this great sport of tennis and college tennis. Yeah, of course. And it's not every day I get to talk to a national championship winning coach. So believe me when I say the pleasure is all mine. And, you know, let's just start there because, of course, uh, you know, Mark, Andrew also on the call. And I want to have that give them the chance to speak. But, you know, of course, you are someone who has been involved in the game of college tennis for so long. Where does your passion for the sport come from? What has kept you in the game since essentially you graduated Mississippi State in 91? Well, as I've, I've told a lot of people, you know, I, I certainly didn't really get into this uh, or I didn't envision myself as a college tennis coach when I was playing at Mississippi State. I, I've said this before. I was playing for Coach Jackson, who's now at Arkansas. Of course, he was at Florida as well. And uh, I played under him for my last three years there. It was John Chris before that. And uh, I just remember thinking, gosh, he was driving like, you know, eight, nine, ten sweaty guys back from Lexington, Kentucky, back to Starkville. And gosh, this sounds like this is like seems like a tough job for him, you know, and and it wasn't, of course, but I mean, it is a tough job in some respects, but it was a great job. And then but it just also has improved a lot over the years. But at that time, I was really thinking about going into sports. I was a, I was really fascinated with the business of sports, which is something we'll probably get to today a little bit because it's really in the news right but um i was going in a little bit different direction but i was going to be in sports uh, maybe not in coaching but more in a leadership maybe athletic director's role agent uh, and i kind of had a chance to do all those things but i kind of found myself in college tennis but that's how it all got started i just sort of stumbled into college coaching in atlanta and uh but uh it, it's been a fun ride so far for sure yeah, and you go from Mississippi State, I believe you played a couple events on the satellite tour and, you know, dabbled in pro tennis, but pretty quickly, as you mentioned, uh, you start your work with the Atlanta Thunder of World Team Tennis. You get a master's degree in sports administration from Georgia State. You know, again, to make that jump from World Team Tennis, I, I'm, obviously you caught the team tennis bug, uh, but how do you get that first head coaching job? Yeah, so, um, you know, when I went to Atlanta, um, and you got to remember, this is, I, I, I left Mississippi State in 92 I, I, to, to head to Atlanta and uh, go to graduate school at Georgia State, which had one of the very top, they still do, one of the top uh, master's programs in sports uh, administration, which, it, you know, at the time, back in the early 90s, that was a very new thing. You know, now it's sort of uh, in vogue. You stuff sports as a business, but that was very new. Uh, but the big thing there was uh, the Olympics were on the way. Atlanta was becoming a huge sports city we know it is a huge sports city now but you know the georgia dome has just been built the the obviously all the infrastructure for uh the the olympics and that's a big deal as you know when you have when you're hosting the olympic games it's great and so a lot of people move to atlanta in sports trying to get those jobs and that's that was sort of in my mind and then also being in georgia state but as i got there you know like you mentioned i worked in world team tennis I did everything there. It's like working for a minor league baseball team, as you know. I got to coach. I got to, uh, you know, hit with, you know, all the Martina. And then we had Bjorn Borg. And that was really fun. Yeah, I got a lot of community events, uh, you know, everything you, you do from 
putting the facility together and, and the PR. So that was really fun. But yeah, it did kind of get my bug to for uh, uh, team tennis again. Um, and then I was uh, uh, offered a sports information director job at this junior college, and I worked in the PR office. And that was kind of my background was in sports writing, PR, uh, kind of a lot of what, what you do. And uh, and then um, I just sort of. Uh, there they asked me to be the the tennis coach as well when this guy retired and and uh they'd been top five nationally and then unfortunately my last three years we won um the national junior college title and and that's when i moved on to uh, notre dame and i kind of I, I knew at that time i was probably going to be a lifer in uh in college tennis no if you're telling me coach that i can go from where i am right now to the eventual successor to you at princeton sign me up i'm in uh, I think I am somewhat on that pathway, but you know, for you again, as you mentioned, you win three uh, national championships in your last three years. Your team uh, pretty quickly started to have success early in your coaching career, and obviously, that's been a springboard for you to all of these different stops. Um, why do you think you were able to have success, you know, so early in your head coaching career, and how do you think that success you had has helped shape the coaching philosophies that have stuck with you throughout your career? Well, I think the fortunate thing for me is what there wasn't. Look, it's a, it's a small college situation. It's a junior college. It wasn't that deep, so I, I'm not, you know, certainly to be top five, you know, nationally wasn't a big deal. But to win it was was big. You know, you had to work hard at that. But but it was just all about recruiting. But I, I was very fortunate to jump into as a, you know, my first job as a head coach. And, and I think when you do something, sort of like jumping into the deep end of the pool, you learn to swim really quick. And, and uh, I, I, I've never looked at, and a lot of athletic administrators will, will be reluctant to hire the assistant coach to be a head coach. And especially if they're, when they're, when they have five, 10 years experience, I'm like, come on, man, <laughs> hire the guy, you know, because um, it's really not rocket science, but there's a lot of other things you need to do. But and I learned all those sort of on the job, and I learned a lot from Coach Jackson, you know, playing under him, and I took a lot, lot of that. But I think you develop your own style when you get to your own program, and so I think I was fortunate to do that. And uh, but but again, it's just really some, you know, a little bit of hard work and, and just commitment to it. Just like being a player, you got to commit to it and be really invested. And and I really loved it, and I hardly made any money there. And uh, but I taught classes in the physical education department. I made more doing that, and then I taught a lot of uh, tennis, you know, like ladies doubles and I uh, made a lot more money doing that but but I was doing that like 40 hours a week to just so I could pay the bills and, and coach college I'm like yeah I just want to coach college now and that's when uh you know for after we won our last one and uh, I believe it was uh, 2000 uh, I met with coach Bayless and uh Athens at the NCAA and agreed to be the uh, assistant coach at Notre Dame yeah, and I, of course, want to talk about that because that's where Mark Andrews, uh, Aerosmith and Andrew Golub come into the picture. But for you, and I think this is something a lot of college coaches, a lot of people around the nation who are invested in the game of college tennis can sympathize with, uh, it's not easy to become a head coach. And even for coaches now who serve as volunteer assistants at programs across the country, hope, you know, hoping someday to be able to make a jump to a full-time position such as an assistant or a head coach, I guess, you know, you talk about... About having to teach classes on the side and having to teach lessons and I'm sure you know for the volunteer assistants and I know some do listen to this podcast that's a sentiment they you know they feel very closely near and dear to their heart because they're doing the same thing I guess how do you manage you know what what allows you to persevere through all of that I don't want to say garbage because I'm sure you're not completely hating what you're doing but just all of the you know putting your head down the grinding that goes into eventually getting the opportunity to become a head coach at a junior your college and then get that assistant job finally at you know a school such as Notre Dame 
Yeah, it's just about being committed and um, and then keeping the the end goal in mind. Um, you know, I remember uh, talking to Brian Bolin, who's a, a good friend, and then when he left Indiana State, I was I was actually um, I, I maybe the runner up for, to him at Virginia back in the day. And when when Virginia wasn't that you know highly um, sought after a job actually then and uh, and he got it and then you know he left Indiana State and you know he he's a great example of a guy who went somewhere made something uh, same with Matt Canole did at Baylor uh, Craig Kiley did at Illinois Vince Westbrook did at Tulsa I think you see a um, a vision of what you can do and the thing is everybody uh, the young coaches think we just got here. And all of these examples, uh, whether it's me or all these other guys, they, I think they invested a lot, uh, not making a lot of money on the front end. It wasn't about financial gain. All those guys eventually got that, right? But on the, on the initial front, it was really about the experience and, and, and building something special and, and seeing the vision for what you're doing and, and really just staying committed to that. And, uh, and Brian told me one time, because I was sort of you know debating whether I'd go back south after Notre Dame and to Alabama. What, I, to be honest, I wasn't crazy about living in Tuscaloosa. I had a great 10 years there, but I, I grew up in the south and sort of I like being in the north now, but I like being all over. But uh, you know, I, he said, hey, you want to coach bad enough, you go where the job is. And, and I always stuck with me. And I tell young uh, assistants that now who may, ah, I don't really want to move there. I'm like, hey, you, you got to go where the job is. And, and, and if you really care about the, because you don't, football, basketball, they don't care. They move all over the place, right? They get the job. It's very competitive. And I think young, uh, you know, aspirational coaches need to hear that message and go where the job is, get your experience and keep moving up. And that, that's, I think just keeping, keeping the goal in mind. Yeah, I think that's advice that resonates across jobs, uh, regardless of what you are doing now. have to go on a quick aside here. Uh, I consider Coach Boland a friend at this point as well. So you got to see young Brian with the full mullet in action. I just have to ask, what was that like? Because I you know, I feel like it had to have been a spectacle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so when I was um, – it was when I was at Notre Dame when I first met Brian, and he had – and Brian has a, a – for another podcast, I'm sure he's told you. I mean, he has a great story <laughs> as to how he ended up in India in the state. He had to beg the AD for the job and they took it for like $10,000 maybe to be the head coach. But, again, he saw the vision and got to be a head coach at a young age. Um, he's actually younger than me. and uh, But he, he did a great job. But I, I just – I remember him and, and Terre Haute, which isn't, isn't a place you would recruit tennis players. And he had a top 20 squad. I think they beat Georgia one year. And um, and we played against them when I was at Notre Dame. And, man, they were he, – he recruited so well. But um, – and he just went after it. And, yeah, the mullet was flying a little bit. And uh, he, uh, he, was, he was doing a good job, man. You could tell he was a winner. And, uh, you know, he was also – you know, he was picking the brain of Coach Bayless, who I worked for, you know, who was a great mentor to a lot of coaches. And he would come over. He's driven over to – south then when he was in indiana to, to pick bobby's brain and uh that was very smart of him i think he did that with a lot of people so it's really 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 great to see what he's done eventually we're going to do a cracked records deep dive on those 99 2000 indiana state teams because i know tony bresky was playing as a competitor i don't remember at which school he was but the amount of college t- you know tennis influence that came out of that little span of time that conference uh just so unexpected again it speaks to there's just this group this culture in college tennis and you know i actually think we see it now with a 
uh, with the class of emerging young assistants. So many of them, you know, recently were just playing college tennis, were having success at various places. A guy uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, Trevor Fauché, obviously out of your Mississippi State Bulldogs, uh, now an assistant at Liberty. So many players are making that sort of jump. And so, yeah, it, it's fascinating to see now. To switch gears a little bit, I, as you mentioned, you end up at Notre Dame, and I know you go head-to-head with the Andrew Golub, Mark Aerosmith, Miami teams in, uh, I believe, a Big East championship in one of your first seasons. Uh, any memories from that on, on a young Mark, a young Andrew, and the threats they posed on the court? <laughs> well, when I arrived, I had heard horror stories from Coach Bayless about this robbery, and I don't mean it up, and I, when I put it a horror story, but it's not a bad way, but it was just such a, it was just like the, the Catholics versus convicts that uh, was hyped as a football robbery, right? And it, yeah. it was funny, and I, I remember hearing that, um, you know, at University of Miami, they held the Big East Tournament back then, uh, most years, and maybe every year, and, and that, they, they had to put police tape up to keep fans from right on top of the court, um, and Mark, and I remember this, they, they heckled, they heckled Bayless so bad, you know, the football team would come out, Mark was friends with all these athletes, and they would just, I mean, y'all talking about, like, world-class heckling, and, uh, <laughs> So it really created a fun environment. You know, when I got there, it probably wasn't as hostile. I do remember Gallo playing Matt Daly, who played for us. But I, I think Mark might have just finished or was injured. I can't remember. But, um, yeah, those were good years, and those were great teams and, and really fun. And that was a great rivalry back then. Billy, uh, that's actually a question I was going to ask you. As far, far as from an environment, tough place to play, you know, I was just curious, some of your toughest places to play. Um, I would imagine Miami was one of them in the big. Big East, but in the Big East championships. But I was just curious of some of the other ones. Yeah, you know, any any place, it doesn't matter about the amount of people, right? Because if you have a thousand people, that can be intimidating. But it's really you can get, you know, ten football players like that play for the U, right? And they come up to your fence and they're hanging over, and these are big, you know, six six three hundred pound guys, and and they're and they're saying everything you don't want to hear during their match and they're doing it perfectly and then you maybe have some loose officiating letting it go yeah that's that's a tough place to play you know and uh, <laughs> i like know? the loose i like the loose officiating part <laughs> yeah, yeah. real loose yeah, yeah. billy are you do, do you recall the exact um comment from one of the one of the baseball players about um Coach Bayless's agent calling. After, that was the best one. I was trying to think of that. Yeah, I think he like held up his cell phone. You know, his cell phone was just almost like brand new thing. That, but he held up his cell phone. Hey, coach, I just got off the phone with your agent. I just got a blockbuster deal for you. You're the poster boy for Rogaine uh, Ultra Slim, <laughs> and uh, uh, I forgot. Seattle. What, I think yeah. Seattle. Yeah, or just for men or something, man. It was, I mean, brutal. And, and Bobby. Bobby, to his credit, you know, he didn't miss a beat. He's like, good one. You got me there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that is awesome. That That's so cool. My, my time down there, I had, I mean, I had Coach K from Duke coming, you know, into the stands to talk to me about how, how my one-man heckling show was as good as what they do at Cameron Indoor. So, yeah, we, we got we had some good uh, – it's a small school, but we had, we had some good heckling. It was good. You sure did. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no question about that. And I guess to follow up off of that, because again, uh, you, so many different environments. You go to Alabama. You're now at Princeton. 
even when it's a, in a in a way crowd that's rooting against you, I, I feel like the environment that can be created in a college tennis town, you mentioned some of the good ones, of course, what they do in Champaign, what Brad Dancer has been able to build off of from what uh, Craig Tilly was able to do. That's college tennis at its finest, right, Coach? You enjoy playing those matches, even if it's a hostile environment, maybe a Columbia crowd or whatever it may be, uh, versus not having a crowd. Absolutely. I mean, you remember, you know, if you asked me about some of the most significant, you know, experiences or maybe successes we've had as a team, it's usually on the road against a hostile crowd or against some odds, right? That's when it's fun to win in sports is when you have some adversity against you and you pull through. And, and it was, and um, I think it was 2001 or 2002 when, and um, at, at Illinois, we upset them. And, and I think they were pretty high, like top five in the country. And we, the net nuts were out in full force, maybe 800, a thousand fans. And we, we had pulled up on upset there four three so you remember those you know if you if you beat somebody on the road even if it's an upset and there's just leaves blowing in the stands there's 10 people not making noise that's not really exciting right so i think all of our players want that they want the challenge and they'll they'll talk about it for 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 years about how they were heckled or how that crowd did this or said that i remember at duke when we uh played them um and then still like regional and we 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 were i think we were 17 in the country they were like 14 so it was pretty close there two seed there were one and we ended up winning four three and both teams had match points but they had a they used to have a gorilla a guy dressed in a gorilla costume come out and and, and heckle and it was so funny to see this gorilla behind it i don't i don't know why uh you know they had that there but it was really so it's kind of part of probably from you know uh the um cameron crazies but it was it was really fun so you remember those and that's what the kids want yeah and i mean i i i think one thing that you see and i mean you even saw it when we came to visit you at alabama golub and i you know that you know javier taborga is there and it's like i mean he's obviously i competed against and that we heckled and our fans did and then you know you spend a, a bunch of time sitting there talking to the guy and I traveled all over the world with Daly. I mean, I still I coach some kids that Daly coaches when they're in Connecticut now, and it's like, you know, is as you know contentious as it is on the court and fun. It's you know everybody I think appreciated it, which is which is what it's supposed to be. Absolutely. No, for sure. And I mean, again, this gets to the larger reason of you, you go to Alabama, you become the head coach, you go from there to Princeton, and you've had all of this success. And so, uh, you know, given the way college tennis has changed over time, because, you know, now more than ever, given the financial scrutiny caused by COVID-19, and where what is college tennis's place in not only uh, the tennis world, but just in college sports, the feasibility of it. Uh, when you look at college tennis and how it's changed, over your 30 years within it do you think it is a viable pathway to the pros coach absolutely uh you know it's it's, it's certainly become that and, I, and we have great examples of uh you know people to point to naturally we you know whether it's isner anderson i mean you can go down a list and and i always chart the uh the grand slams in terms of doubles too if you you know traditionally if you look at the slams and i don't, I don't know people really uh um, you know, publicized this or articulated this or talked about it enough, but like the the number of doubles guys um, in a slam that play college tennis is, is close, usually close to one quarter of the field. It, it may be less, a little bit less than 10% on the um, you know 128 single straw, but but so there's a lot of guys because of that team tennis format, and we and of course we push the doubles in, in college so much. 
much. And it is a good pathway. And of course, the resources have grown so much. And and as you just alluded to, though, um, we're going through a really tough time financially. And I have a lot of opinions on that in terms of, uh, you know, how we've, you know, departments have really financially mismanaged what's going on in college. And I don't know if there's going to be a glory. The glory days might have been when when here Mark and Andrew played at Miami and I was coaching Notre Dame. And, you know, the resources were good. But they didn't. They weren't out of control then, you know, because it became such an arms race, you know, and it just the, the the amount of millions of dollars being spent. And again, it goes back to my original thing where I wanted to be in the sports business, but it's it's kind of gone a little bit haywire. And now we're seeing that, and nobody really is prepared for a rainy day. The Ivies are pretty, you know, uh, protected for a rainy day to some degree. But um, it's really a tough time. But I, I still think it's a great pathway. Um, I always think getting an education is great, and we know the statistics on the tour with a uh, top 100 the average age is 26 27 so that stands for reason why don't you go to school for four years and stevie johnson's probably you know along with this are the best examples because they went all four years and look what they've done and and i just think it, it could be more guys if they made that, that decision but they don't always get good guidance um whether it's their personal coach whether it's even their parents and they're listening to maybe even an agent or whatever they they go pro Oh, and, and then we have a lot of stories where, hey, if that guy had just gone to college, he'd be in much better shape. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I've been going through that recently with one of my kids, you know, who you recruited quite a bit. Um, and it is tough. I mean, he's had agents reach out to him. He's had, you know, people say, yeah, he can't go to college. And I, mean, I, I think he... I think he needs to. He knows he needs to. Um, you hit it on one thing there. It was one of the questions I had written down, so it's kind of perfect. Um, how do you think the finances of, of college tennis and, and college sports are going to change short-term and long-term um, from as a result of COVID? Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the big point, right? And, um, of course, we need to see if football happens. Everybody knows that it really is crucial for football to happen because you don't need to do that at the expense of the player's safety. Uh, we got to look out for the student athletes and, and do it for the right reasons. Um, but I think it, I've, I've told a lot of uh, friends and colleagues lately, you know, I've kind of used this term. It's, like, it's sort of like if you're a mid-major, um, you know, and, and you're just kind of getting by, uh, but you're not, you're not overspending. You're sort of like that middle income family who really has to t- keep account of their bills or monthly, you know, income coming in and, and what their house payment is or car payment and how many times they go out to eat. That's kind of like a lot of the mid-majors. And so they're not, all, all those guys aren't necessarily in, I actually worry about the power five to some degree because there's so many millions of dollars being spent with these coaching buyouts um, and obviously some football, basketball, and, we, and, and, and look, I, I will say this, I'm the biggest football fan, I think you guys know that, I'm the biggest college football and pro football fan in the world, I love it, I, I watch more of that than I do tennis, and I'm pulling for it, but I think there is a lot of mismanagement of funds, and, and I think there needs to be a cap on that spending, and, but, but it's because of the arms race, the recruiting, right, and uh, so I think, you know, if you can shave, you know, a few million dollars, these buyouts, and the, uh, the coaches' salaries we're paying uh, for football and basketball, and um, and then more re- redistribute that through the departments. And I think these departments just really need to do a better job and not spending because they reinvest their money because it's a four, most all these are a 413C. I mean, a, a 3C, but that's a nonprofit. So they're, they're having to, um, you know, not show too much profit and, 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 and reinvest the money back in the facilities. And uh, so I think we've got to really uh, tighten our belts. Um, you know, the, the Ivy's a lot different model. 
clearly. We don't have to sponsor scholarships and we, we endow a lot of our budget, which is really a great model, but that's not going to be the same for everybody. And, you know, my old volunteer assistant, Matt Hill has um, done a few podcasts and he's, he's done such a great job. He's a head coach at Arizona state. And, you know, he, he, uh, he talks about this a lot about, you know, the community engagement. We really need to do a good job to protect our programs because clearly there's been a lot of uh, non-revenue sports dropped during the pandemic and, and, and a lot of them have been unfortunately men's or women's tennis and, and i just i think that's a shame and i i i really get mad i'm sure you guys do too when you see these non-revenue programs throughout whatever sport it is and they, they're kind of pointing fingers at our our sports for for taking away and we're not really a, a big budget item it doesn't really move the needle forward when you drop a non-revenue sport for the most part yeah. And so just to follow up on that thought, Coach, because we saw, I think it was yesterday, the NCAA Division One Council uh, said uh, expected to vote on a day uh, that would allow that was intended uh, for, or, you know, the central one was baseball, but that's obviously something that influences tennis as well. And, you know, to a follow up point to something you said as well as from an Ivy League perspective, you guys can't even offer uh, the same sort of athletic scholarships as maybe some other programs can. And so I guess my, my question to you is being at an Ivy League school now and, you know, the Ivy League already announced they're not going to have sports in the fall. And I believe when the NCAA extended that extra year of eligibility to the class of 2020 spring sport athletes. I don't think the Ivy League was going to be able to take advantage of it as well. Um, I guess the question is, given COVID-19, the various impacts it will have, do you think it will create a tiered system where just the big schools, the Michigans, the Texases of the world are just going to have a financial advantage over everyone else that's so big that those disparities will manifest itself, you know, even in not just in football, but in places like tennis as well? Um, I actually, with what's happened, I think we're going to see a little bit of a, maybe a reversal in, in, in a way because you, when, when Stanford's dropping 11 sports program, that, that's a cause for alarm, right? Um, and uh, I just think, again, I go back to what I said previously, I don't know if we can you know, continue to pump the kind of money into football and basketball. And, and I really do think we, we've kind of gotten away, and I don't, I don't want to sound like this you know, this Ivy League nerd here. I, 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 I'm, really, I'm really not. I think most people that know me, but, but I do love higher education. I really do. And, and tennis players, it's usually not a problem. In fact, I, I'd say for 99.5% of the kids that play college tennis, man, they're smart wherever they are, even if they're, you know, at a junior college or a small college or somewhere else that's maybe not considered academic. Most most tennis players have been around the world. They're really bright people. Uh, they, they go for the right reasons. And actually, they're not as entitled because – they don't really have these scholarships. They're not given everything, and especially on the men's side where you have to kind of fight for it. Um, and that is a good measure. I think across the board, we've we've argued for that one for years. And you're right, baseball is in the same boat we are with 11.7 scholarships. And you've got guys on very little scholarships that are very high-quality baseball players, just like tennis players on the men's side. And so um, now that doesn't necessarily help the Ivies because that was one of our advantages is we, we could make other schools – couldn't mix it and we we kind of we have really good financial aid but we don't have athletic scholarships but the thing about it and i tell young coaches all the time when you start looking at the job you really want think about where it is you want to go but also what are your advantages what are your disadvantages and every school is very different um and that's probably one of my biggest complaints with college students with the four and a half is just you know on the men's side it's just it, everybody's four and a half is completely different you know 
Um, the SEC runs the gamut on their different types, where there's Georgia, Florida have their, their a lot of scholarships, as, as well as many others in the SEC. Some don't, and you know some schools have better advantages. So, but you, as a coach, that's part of the the, the trick is you got to figure out a way, be smart, and how do you, how you, what's your model, and how do you navigate that? Mm-hmm. No, I I completely agree. It's something that's changing in, across the dynamics uh, of college tennis, and I know you serve on the ITA board of directors and. You know, I've been fortunate enough to get the chance to chat with uh, ITA CEO Tim Russell a little bit uh, during this time period just to pick his brain as well. And I'm curious, uh, as you mentioned, it seems more often than not, it's, you know, the men's tennis programs are the ones that are getting knocked down. And thankfully, due to Title IX, women's tennis programs do have a bit more of a built-in buffer because, you know, the scholarship money has to match both for men's and women's athletic scholarships. But Again, given COVID-19 and its impact uh, broadly across the college sports spectrum and even beyond that, you know, college tennis having its particular international flair that it does, uh, the fact that there are travel restrictions and all of these various things in place, uh, how are you and, you know, the board feeling about trying to get this 2020-2021 season underway? Obviously, the Ivy League already cancels all fall sports, so that impacts your program in particular, but in general, uh, do you think there is a pathway for college tennis to return uh, this fall? I do. I do. And I, I think everybody has to make their individual decision. And of course, uh, Tim is, you know, besides being a trusted colleague, is a, is a really good friend. And, and I think, you know, like any organization, they have to, they can't really control the decisions by a conference or, or a university or college. So, so he has to kind of, are we on the board or, you know, the operating committee, anybody that's leadership and uh, the ITA has to kind of sit back and wait to see what, what's going to happen, who's going to play. I think, I think Tim's feeling is, and mine is too, is that, you know, if, even if you play the All-Americans or the All- Oracle Fall Championships and maybe some teams can't compete, which obviously the Ivies wouldn't be able to compete. I think the Patriot League announced, I think some other bigger schools have already announced uh, that they're not playing in the fall. And that's understandable. It's, everybody just has to get uh, their head around the fact this is a, <laughs> if they haven't already, this is a very unusual, weird situation and a very unusual year for everyone's lives. So it's not going to be equitable. Uh, I think we've said that many times. So we just have to like, but I do think it's important to, if there is fault in to, and we, in some schools can play, play it. I, I'm not going to be jealous if they, I'm going to be happy if other schools can play. So we need to try, but I do think the focus, you know, besides that should be, if we can play in the spring, bro, all the teams can somehow manage some type of spring season. I think that's actually a win for us right now. I, I think it's for us, it's probably up in the air right now. We're going to wait. Um, and it's just everything's changing. We keep saying it's a fluid situation, and we've heard that so many times in the news, right? But it is. And it's everyday changes. There's new news um, of things happening that cause us to adjust. So we're in a real reactionary period. But I think if we can manage to get by, and we need to really protect the programs we have, we need to, uh, coaches need to do a good job during this time of, of um, you know, getting in the community if they can, obviously, and say in a safe way, but also communicating with their administration, and making sure they're safe, and, and, and fighting for tomorrow, whatever tomorrow is, whether it's a spring, whether it's uh, next year. If we can get through this year and, um, you know, get football back on its feet and basketball to play in the winter and spring, I think we'll be in a lot better shape. We just need some. We need a win overall. We we need a vaccine clearly, but we need some good news. But I think there's a pathway because um, tennis is a safe sport. And I don't know if we're. That's the one of the questions we all have. Will they break it down by, by sport? I think most universities are going to make a decision about who competes based on um, not necessarily if it's safe, but are we all competing as 
department, right? So, um, so that's a big thing. A lot of questions to be answered, but but hopefully in the next uh, few months things will improve and we can have some fall tennis and leading into our spring championship season. Do you do you think this will lead to down the road and full time maybe a little more regional competition? You know how it used to be. And I, I know a few college coaches who I've talked to. You know, have even you know mentioned about setting up. UTR tournaments in the fall and having the schools that are close to them just competing in those. I mean, do you think this will lead to more regional play permanently? Yeah, that's a great point. I think it does. I think just what I said earlier gets back to that sort of era when we played, uh, when you guys were playing and, uh, and, you know, roughly in the early 2000s, we weren't yet. I mean, we flew a lot, but we weren't like flying around the country in the fall so much. I think that's, what's really changed. And again, it's sort of analogous to what's happened at uh, the Power Five level from a revenue sport perspective, where the 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 um, you know the the revenues have come in, and then you've got clothing deals, and you've got all these extras, right? And and then one school does this in the fall. One tennis team goes to California from the East Coast, or vice versa, and all of a sudden you got people zigzagging or, or playing futures and all these other things. And um, and I think you try to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. Even if you're, you're a mid-major, you try to keep up. And uh, the Ivies, we're, we're actually pretty uh, are, we're pretty financially secure. We've got a really strong budget. We can we can do that. And I, I'm, I'm probably, you know, guilty of it as well. We, were, we had a lot of, um, you know, flights this fall scheduled. And, and, and maybe we need to sort of, like, save ourselves from ourselves, so to speak, um, and, and, and kind of be a little bit more moderate. One thing I don't want to do is – and I've been a very strong advocate of this. I, I am an advocate of having the uh, potentially the NCAA singles and doubles championship at the end of the fall. I think that would make more sense. We talked a lot about that. Um, but I think the falls, we've got to preserve the falls because, you know, I don't want to be a one, one semester sport, you know, like a lot of sports are. I think it was one of the beauties of tennis, full development year. You know, the kids come in and maybe August or early September and, and they're playing right away and, and then we go all the way until late May. I think that's beautiful. And then they play in the summer uh, or they're on campus in the summer. I mean, as you guys know, this is an everyday sport and we need to have them competing all the time. So I don't want to lose the fall, but we, we probably need to be more mindful of what we do and save some money. But yeah, more regional play is the answer, more UTRs um, and maybe not chase this professional thing while in school because that's a big, that's a big, uh, probably, uh, you know, another lightning rod of discussion, but, you know, it's something interesting, yeah. You know, this is a uh, obviously a topic we could probably talk on for days and days. And it's just like you said, it's a fluid situation. It's crazy what's going on. And every day something changes, the news changes, the info changes. So, you know, so, you know, I kind of want to shift gears here to uh, to nutrition. Um, obviously, you know, you know, Aerobar well, um, you have you've used them. Your team has used them at times. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you how, how you see nutrition change from even when you played back from when you played to now to when we were playing um just the the cycle of nutrition and, and what you're seeing the difference yeah that's 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 an interesting one um i you know when i think back when i played i don't think many people were talking about nutrition you know um we didn't um i don't think we were even drinking a lot of gatorade back when i played i mean it was it was it was around but it just probably been invented a few years earlier um and we didn't understand probably the benefit of say electrolytes or are really using um different things besides water just to hydrate i mean you see every 
high level player now on the tour they have their own concoction different colors and um which is important you know um and so i think that's one thing i think even like we i think when i played we didn't think about necessarily eating during a match unless you really had something going on you were cramping um and i think that's really important we, we've got some players that are pretty good at this knowing how to manage um themselves on changeovers maybe they're eating almonds or eating something that's easy easily digestible um that they can uh, continue and, and, and you see different players are so different you know the the amount of different guys have different metabolisms and, and you, we have some guys that sweat so much and have big muscle groups and they're burning a lot they have big engines and those are the guys we have to watch and um, sometimes as a coach you have to make sure you're they've got snacks right there while they're playing um and and some guys do a better job of that and some guys don't so it's become really important i'm that that's just really kind of around the courts but obviously what they're doing off the court um is really important at the dining halls and we've got some really good healthy options um in our dining halls but and i think every dining hall in the country does but are the are the kids actually being disciplined with what they're eating so i think that's that's just as crucial as what they're doing after practice and then before practice uh away from the courts is that something billy that you look at you know when you you know when you're recruiting a kid are you looking at the the fitness and nutrition then or are you pretty confident that you can make a dent in kind of molding that kid's fitness and nutrition when they when they get to you yeah, that, that's interesting. I think um, most kids either kind of get it or don't when they come to school. Um, if they're o- at least open-minded to nutrition, um, that's great. I think college young men or boys, what you call them, I think they're some of the worst eaters in general. They love their sweets, you know, so we got to limit those on the road unless, you know, we get a big win. And okay, I'll let them get desserts, of course, but you know, I think they just don't understand the, 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 the amount of, you know, sugars are putting in their body sometimes. And as we all know, you guys know this with putting together the bar, it's like, yeah, there's, especially when you're playing, there's some sugars that you, you need, you know? Um, but I think just randomly, you know, you don't drink a Gatorade just laying around at night. I, I, I don't feel it. that's, that's a very bad thing to do. Just, you know, drink a, a jug of Gatorade before you go to bed for no reason. Right. Just because it tastes good. Maybe. And we'll have guys do that. I'm like, that's not good. You know, so some of these, I, I call these guys a prince and sometimes they're smart, dumb guys or dumb, smart guys. I can never figure it out. <laughs> they're, 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 you think they come in with all the, they're, they're super bright, obviously really, really, really bright. And then they don't get the small things that like, wow, you don't get this, but we have some guys that are actually really good at it too and manage it. So I think we see both ends of the spectrum. And, and of course we've got, you know, what's changed too is we have fueling stations so they can pick up some food um, when they're going. But I think it's time management. I think they just need to understand, okay, I may need to spend three minutes in the morning putting stuff in my backpack before I leave my dorm or apartment to go to campus. I'm going to be gone all day. And I don't think they, most guys don't have that preparation mindset. Yeah. No, and to follow up on that, uh, you sort of mentioned it earlier. I feel like tennis players are underrated eaters. All you know, you grow up around enough tennis players, especially those who are particularly succeeding at a high level, and they are just tanks. It's just, especially when you're fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, you can eat anything in the world, anyways. Uh, certainly, tennis players take advantage of that fact. And you sort of mentioned earlier how tennis, in, in particularly college tennis, uh, but it applies to the pros as well, is really one of those rare sports that goes, you know. 
10, 11 months out of the year. And so, you know, how much, and when you're focusing on the nutrition is not only building good habits for your players, but how difficult is it to also, you know, factor in getting them to peak at the right sorts of times? Yeah, periodization is really important, and that's what you're hitting on. And that that really encompasses what you're doing as a model. Like kind of a, if you, every program probably has a blueprint, right, in the country, the top programs, and and they have a weight program uh, clearly. So we have a strength coach, and you're doing that. And 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 how much are you working hard? You know, obviously the fall, maybe you're working a little bit more in the weight room, maybe three times a week. Where and then it becomes in the spring, it's a little bit more like if you're on the tour to some degree, where guys on the tour or traveling to play futures and challengers or you know they're in a hotel room trying to get a workout in but you obviously can't really lift a lot of weight during that week right if you unless you have three or four days off and it's hard so um yeah that, that's really tricky so and then and then of course then you know you have a nutritional periodization um of how you can be eating as well um and then training blocks from tennis so i think i think tennis is a very complex sport when you look at it like that and then sports science is it's clearly become a lot more important. And, and again, it sort of goes, um, it sort of parallels what's happened with the rise of college athletics and the resources. We have more, you have a nutritionist, you have a psychologist, you have these things to sort of plan. I think uh, college tennis coaches have gotten more, I, I guarantee it 30 years ago, they were mostly thinking about X's and O's. I think we think a lot more about stuff that's not X's and O's now, and it's about this stuff. Um, and, and clearly tennis analytics has become some, something that's part of the sports science, uh, you know, umbrella that we, we have to talk about as well. And it's a big part of what we do. So I think you put all that together. It's a very complex sport, uh, um, but that's what makes it fun, right? It makes it challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you sort of started to get into the weightlifting and, you know, that's another part of the health and nutrition, right? And the fitness of a tennis player and, you know, Matteo Berrettini aside or the Sam Stozers of the world, you're not going to get, you know, the bulkiest of players, right? You're not going to have these 240 pound linebackers, except for again, maybe Malik Jaziri as you look across uh, the tennis spectrum. But, and this might be a, a pretty basic question. I feel like when it comes to tennis fitness, of course, there's still sprints and plyometrics and things you can do. But one of the more underrated aspects is recovery. And I feel like beyond, you know, again, the weightlifting, all of that thing, would you say the recovery process in tennis equally, if not even more important than, you know, just the standard lifting weights yeah i think that's really really important you know and we've we've had um mark kovacs you know be a consultant for us at times he's a he's a really good friend i don't know if you guys knew this but mark you know he's he did his phd at alabama when i was there and he was you know he was like this this brilliant guy like like he is now but he, you could tell he was so brilliant then and he was ha- putting our guys uh, on the vo2 max and okay, they were kind of guinea pigs and his it was they were like lab rats for him and it was great for our guys but um yeah i really learned a lot about it then and it it, it was becoming a a big a big thing then so um yeah it's, it's such an interesting part of, of what we do now and the weights and the recovery um i don't think people take they think take for granted and granted we're, we're not you know, we're necessarily like if you look at Novak play Rafa in a five set Grand Slam final, cause that's like that's like a heavyweight fight that people have to wait. You know, those guys even have to train six 
months for just for that moment. And that's even after six matches of three out of five tennis. Granted, we're not quite doing that. We play no ad. But these guys also have other demands with school. In a place like Princeton, uh, they're not getting uh, – sleep is a big thing for us, right? Uh, we're not we're not getting as much sleep. And it's it's amazing. I, I tell guys all the time, if you – they, they say how do you how do you are you successful in the Ivy League? I said well just you know if, just don't I hope I get guys that don't really care to sleep that much you know don't get guys <laughs> sleep ten hours a day because you don't have the time for it and they're like oh, I kind of like to sleep I think well it's better if you got in the Navy Seal month so you want to sleep four hours but that's not a good model either and I know a lot of our coaches have used like a heart rate system to assess their players when we come to see are they in good shape before practice, right? Did they get the amount of sleep? Are they hydrated? Um, things of that nature. But the recovery, going back to the recovery question you asked, and that's that's really important because I think it's um, an underrated thing we do. So how, are, again, going into nutrition, do they go to the dining hall after they've had like a three-hour practice and a weightlifting session with us and say it was really tough? Okay, what do you eat? Obviously, a lot of protein. You got to build and repair the muscle uh, fibers, right? Um, got to hydrate a lot, maybe some electrolytes. And are they doing that though? And and that's the recovery there. And then maybe knowing when to take days off. And maybe we need to give the guys a day off to be fresher. And, and we're happy to do that when they need it, and they're not just trying to take advantage, right? And uh, and there may be an active recovery day. Maybe they just get in a, a swimming pool and then splash around, just doing something that. You know, go see the trainer, do some stretch. We've gotten into yoga, too. Yoga's been so good, obviously, for, for our, our mind and body, you know, and and um, that's been something that's been really successful for our guys. So there's so many elements to it, right? It's just, it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of it must boil down to the trust you put in your players and how important is that from the head coaching perspective? Because, you know, again, the, once you're in college tennis, these are 18 to 22, 23-year-old kids who are obviously still becoming the adults that they will someday hopefully grow into. But how much of your job is, you know, obviously putting your players into to, in a position to succeed, but also just, you know, having them, of course, you know, put having trust in them that they are doing all of these things off the court. Right. Well, I, I, I think if people that know me, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a micromanager. You know, I, I, I don't want to nitpick these guys because I feel like it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I know it's, I know a lot of parents, obviously, and we recruit a lot with parents and, and kids, and you see good and bad parenting, but, but you see how like really good parents uh, do their job, and, and you, you sort of give the kids a little rope, right, and they learn more on their own. It's more impactful when they can learn a little bit, um, you know, when they're making some good decisions for themselves, creating those good habits you talked about. Um, and I, I don't think if I'm nitpicking, and sometimes I'll, you know, we, we'll get on them, of course, about about things. And uh, But I think it's just steering them in the right direction and having that trust. I do like our model at Princeton because uh, in the Ivy Leagues, so the, you know, the, 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 the rigorous academic load they have makes it, a little bit easier in a way to just focus on two things, focus on tennis, focus on academics, you know, um, you know, we don't quite have that party culture. So there's not that huge distraction, like, you know, like Aerosmith and, and Gala where, you know, like Lee practice probably go sit in front of their frat house. And you know, I, never, I never went out. I never went out in college, Billy. <laughs> and, and, and I didn't belong to a frat. So they're both inaccurate. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, can't. I, I, went, I went out. I'll be. I went out a little bit. I'll be honest. Well, as, as Coach Jackson would tell you, I was. I was not a model citizen as far as that went. You know, I was rush chairman of our. <laughs> I was doing all this stuff. I wanted to burn the candle at both ends, and it's not ideal, right? 
right? So, but that's why I like our model because it sort of forces them to time manage, force them to. So I hate that whole narrative of somebody going, ah, oh, you don't want, you want to go the, um, if you're going to Ivy League, you can't be a pro tennis player. That's 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 hogwash. You can, you know, it's just about time management. We saw what James Blake did. We had a guy, Matia Pekadich, who got up to around 206 in the world a few years ago. Then stopped, he got injured, went to Harvard Business School, two years, graduated, first term of back, he won a Futures. Um, I think he won about five last year, got back to 330 when the pandemic started. And this is after, you know, he's 30 years old with a uh, Princeton and Harvard degree, and he's still out there playing. And, yeah, but he's a special guy, but you can do it. Um, there's been guys that have done it. And so it's just the, the problem is Ivy Leaguers are usually offered a really good, uh, you know, uh, job when they graduate, and they it's a lot of money, so they – usually don't go play the futures necessarily but we have a lot of guys trying it which is really good but but i but anyway you can do it in the time time management but so we do give them a lot of trust back to your original um you know question and and i think they they grow through that they grow a lot more through that and i think we we have to trust our players and uh, but that's our style you know not everybody's like that and um but it really works i think it works for us yeah they they i think they mature a lot quicker and become their own people no, certainly it's working out for your program, and you look at the the trajectory. You guys are on twenty and nine last year. You were fourteen and four, I believe, number eighteen in the rankings when the season stopped. I guess a, you know, how are you feeling right now about the state of your Princeton program? And b, uh, you know, can you talk us through because you, no one can ever imagine something like COVID nineteen happening. But for you guys to be fourteen and four, have the season you know taken away from you, what's that process like for you? And you know, in communicating that to your players. Yeah, we were we were really excited where we were headed. I think we were just about to um, even you know hit another gear. We had one of our, our freshmen who was injured the whole year, really, right up until we were about to play um, Pepperdine on our spring break trip, and he was going to make his kind of singles debut. And he was really really good player, and so I think it would have been strengthened us even more. I think we would have made a really good push for the Ivies, and as you guys, and I'm sure Alex, as you know, that was what's really crazy is the Ivies, I don't think this has ever happened in history. We had five teams in the top 25 in one one or two weeks, I believe, uh, this year in the Ivies. I mean, that's just that's just incredible. So um, so there's a lot of great competition, but we were headed in a, in a, in a really good trend. Um, our, our guys were naturally like everybody else disappointed i i think the only thing you you look at right now everybody stopped the world stopped and so yeah everybody can be really crushed and disappointed but we're going through a tough time just like you know maybe your parents or grandparents or you know their 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 parents you know went through world wars and 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 you know the depression and all this stuff and a lot of kids they haven't been of course mark and um you know you know andrew on this call i remember i was in notre dame when 9-11 happened and that was probably the biggest tragedy really and I, that would that stop the world but it really only stopped the world for a few days when we were playing sports again right i mean it changed the world for sure the way we do things but but this really is uh changing the world and certainly the u.s and so um yeah it's a it's a really unique time and i think we're just having to persevere through it um i really do want to get the spring uh you know going again with if it's safe because i think our guys feel like there was some unfinished business but i really really do like where we're headed i think we've got the right guys i think it, it took probably took me a few years to get the right guy i think you know there's a lot of smart guys out there but we're looking for guys who want to be tennis players first you know like like mark's guy he coached is uh, going to umc you know, logan i mean he's he's a guy we recruited he certainly could have gone um ivy had an incredible sat score there's a lot of guys like that out there and but we want those guys that want tennis first um not the guys who are smart who happen to play tennis we want the the guys who are, are tennis players or maybe even want to 
answer the tour um, who happen to be smart. That, that's really what we're looking for. So I think that's kind of what we've gotten in terms of our culture. So we're being very specific about the culture we're building. And I think the team we had this year, that was probably what was disappointing because we finally, I think we really cracked the code a little bit and had the team we really wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to to follow up on that, and it's something you mentioned earlier as well. And you know, again, I appreciate you giving us as much time as you have. I don't want to take up too much more of it, but um, you know, you talked, you mentioned this earlier. There, it seems in general there are a lot of tennis players who uh, seem to be smart people, and I think some of the actions we've seen from some of the professional uh, professionals on tour over these past four months may indicate otherwise. But in general, you know, tennis does happen to people who are playing tennis tend to come from socioeconomic better back and because of that they probably have experienced better education throughout their life and all of that is to say to get to your point this year in the men's college tennis season as you mentioned for the first time ever we saw five Ivy League teams inside the top 25 of the rankings justifiably so and you look at the tennis recruiting or UTR whatever metrics you want to go by it does seem over the past 10, 15 years, there has been a strong shift uh, from, uh, you know, higher level recruits making the decision to, you know, instead of going to maybe, uh, I don't know, I'm just going to say a random school and I apologize because we've had his school. All right, I'm going to say a random different school because we've had that coach. Like in Auburn, let's say, instead of in Auburn, they'll go to a Princeton or a Columbia or a Harvard. Is that a trend you have noticed as well? Do you think Ivy League tennis will, you know, has drawn uh, a higher and higher caliber of recruit over these past 10 to 15 years? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it um, it's certainly what people don't know, you know, if you look back a little bit historically, Historically, um, in the in the 80s, particularly, I think you know we had um, Princeton had top 10 teams. Uh, we had uh, Jay Lapidus, who of course uh, coached Duke for many years when uh, these guys were playing against them, and um, Ramsey was his assistant. And uh, Jay played uh, Princeton was top 30. Uh, Leif Shiras, who does is a broad tennis broadcaster, he was I think around 30 or so in the world. Um, you had Ted Farnsworth. Yeah, you had some guys who were really, really good uh, playing back then and, and, and making their mark on the tour, and people forget that. So they, they were doing it then. And, and then it sort of maybe went away in the 90s and and then uh, and maybe even the early 2000s. But, but when I came here in 2012, it seemed like that was really shifting again to another gear. Um, so I, and I think there were a lot of coaching changes in the Ivy. I think the financial aid improved a lot too. They got, it got, became really generous. And so that was helpful. Um, and then, again, like you mentioned, I think there were just a lot of smart guys out there seeking those opportunities. And uh, and so that that all those the combination of things really allowed the Ivies to be to be strong. But um, I think everybody has to find their fit. You know, you really have to find the right. I don't know if players. You know, they always have a preconceived idea where they want to go or what a school is. And until you visit, do you, do you really know and get to know the coach and the culture? So um, it's a very interesting process. But, um, yeah, we don't want the guys who just want Ivies necessarily. We like to recruit against the, the, the Power Fives and other because I think that shows a little bit more variety. also shows the guys are really interested in, in um, you know, tennis at a high level, not just, okay, I just want to leverage my tennis ranking just to get to an ivy and then maybe they back off and i think that happened in the 90s and 2000s the ivies i think then coaches have gotten a little bit more strict about that and then and more choosy about the recruits we're getting and then it's um and i think what columbia's done the last few years i mean they've they've done a great job of of, of 
really uh, building a, a fierce team, obviously, and been top 10, even top five, I think. And um, so they've been tough to beat, you know, but I think that gap's going to close. I think everybody's good in, in our league. And so it's, it's going to be fun to see. Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And, years coming. You know, yeah, you, you talk about some of the guys who have emerged, guys like Winston Lynn and, you know, Macha Pekatic, as you mentioned. There are a ton of talented Ivy League players who continue to, you know, go dabble in the pros, and it shows more and more that Ivy League tennis a pathway to the pros as well. Now, again, you've been so kind with your time. Uh, last two questions for you. One, you know, serious one, not as much. Let's start with a serious one. I know you, I believe, recently had knee surgery. Just wanted to make sure. How are you feeling, Coach? Everything's feeling good? You're, you're full, back to 100%? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm doing great. It was just a partial knee. Uh, I think it was too many years of tennis followed by too many years of squash. Squash, I think, probably put it over the top. I was sort of addicted to squash, and a lot of people joke that I left Alabama to find more squash courts at Princeton because there was only one at Bam. It's kind of true, you know. I mean, a lot of you guys play golf at a high level. You wouldn't necessarily take a coaching job if there wasn't a golf course, right? Um, So if you look at so yeah but it's going great my recovery's fine i mean i just you just i probably shouldn't be driving but i drove to the grocery before here and i've been uh doing the rehab and i'm walking almost normal now after one week so it's been uh been great uh so i, I thought this was a good time to do it to rehab i mean we can't do camps we can't recruit right now so um but i'm on the mend and i can now i can move my to my right and hit a hit a forehand again uh in a few weeks so that'd be good so i'll be ready when the guys come back this fall so that's that's exciting thanks for asking yeah, no, we're really glad to hear that, of course. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I want to see you out there. You can't let Brett Foreman, a guy I grew up with, be the most successful tennis player on the court right now of the coaches. You know, you still got to beat him down a little bit. <laughs> well, if I can't beat him, I bet my assistant Damien could beat him. You know, he coached him a <laughs> year. And uh, Damien's like, I, I, I say this, I mean, I've never seen a guy as fast. You know, he's, he's a little jitterbug out there. You know, he was a, he was a great player. He was like 35 ITF. And he still has the same level, I think. He hasn't aged. And, yeah, nobody nobody gets a ball past him on the baseline. It's, it's pretty funny. It's just a, you know, but it, it's, it's fun to have those guys working. We, we've been very – I've been very fortunate to, uh, you know, have really good good assistants. And I, I really work at that. That's another thing. You know, it's like any business. you got to – you surround yourself with good people. Good things happen, any organization. And that, I've been fortunate to, to do that. And uh, that was what people used to joke. I, yeah, I was a, I was a pretty good player, but not great, but, you know, I always had great partners. I had to get a good partner. I was like, you know, it's like getting a good prom date, you know, you sort of out kick your cover, somebody that can kind of carry you, make you look good, you know? So it always is good when you can do that. Yeah, no, that's definitely a win for sure. And, you know, for you now to see guys who played around your time, like Robbie Weiss and, you know, uh, Chris Woodruff, who I think might have come a little bit after you, but so many guys from that area now to be competing against them in the college coaching ranks. Is that fun for you? Does that add more pressure or, you know, does that just make everything more enjoyable? No, I think it's fun. I think what really is – interesting is um you know you have like th- those guys you mentioned and of course you've got like guys like coach den at a&m and and then you just a host of other uh, benny beckers at uh you know michigan i mean you, you just go down a list of great former tour players who've gone to the college ranks and it's great to have those guys and clearly that's a great advantage for those schools to have guys who can talk about their days on the tour um and uh, but then you've got again going to like who you know 
um, you know, was, was actually was sick in college, couldn't really advance his tennis the way he wanted, but he, he played college. And, but I mean, he's a guy that just worked, you know, outworked people. And a lot of the guys I mentioned earlier on this call by me weren't the best players weren't they weren't playing professional at all or barely playing college maybe and they become great and you've seen that even in the nfl right um in college football or basketball um you don't have to be the best player but that's what makes it interesting you know and uh and so uh, there's there's a lot of there's different ways to skin a cat right and everybody has a certain advantage whether it's recruiting whether it's player development whether it's fundraising uh program management whatever it is and but it is fun to see all the different types of talents um and people like brian uh you know or maybe even craig tiley when he was doing it or, or dick gould they, they almost bring a little bit of a business approach to their program and you know? so it's, it's very interesting yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. Well, then, last question for you, because I pride myself as a historian of college tennis, so I like to just, you know, feel where everyone is at with this question, because I think this is one of the more critical ones for all the people who follow men's college tennis closely. So, Coach, you know, a lot of pressure at going into this final question. Uh, the question for you is this. You're coaching the dual match. It's your team. It's the NCAA finals, and you get to pick one player from 21st men's uh, 21st century college tennis, men's college tennis to be your number one singles player do you go isner do you go devarman or do you go steve johnson wow wow that is tough that is really tough man i would go i mean obviously if it's you know are, are, we, are we talking about just the match is starting or the match is in play <laughs> yeah no the match is just started you haven't you haven't picked it yet you can factor this you're going to get this guy in doubles too gosh um i would probably guys that's a tough one right <laughs> i might i might go with stevie johnson just because you kind of and it's similar to somdev you know what you're going to get and we played a big against big john I mean, we kind of knew we were getting there too but um yeah, I I, uh, I would probably go with Stevie. I mean, having won, you know, every year he was there, which is an incredible record, um, and he was so good in doubles as well. Um, but John's a friend, and I don't want to – so that's a tough one, you know. But uh, I tell people all the time, John, um, you know, he, he stopped serving volley and a lot on the tour. You know, he still will occasionally, but in college he was just cherry-picking because nobody could really return. They'd bun it back, but it just flowed, and he could – but then on the tour, he had to learn to play. I give him a lot of credit for what he did on the tour from a, a baseline perspective. He had to learn to play from the ground because the guys could return too well on the tour. Yeah, no, I, it's all fair. I, I you know, I, having watched, I, I consider myself a Virginia slappy, um, and I watched a lot of Sam Dev highlights over the years. I've just, it's just a sure thing. You're like, oh, is this guy going to give me 125 percent today? Yeah. Now Stevie's just going to go out there and win. Like, there's just no question about that. But. I, I, I just was always a big Samdev guy. It's just interesting. And, you know, they're both obviously so outstanding. And not to be disrespectful to, for John, I just think those two are in their own category almost. No, and Samdev was. His foot speed and balance was remarkable. I mean, you, you just you had to overpower him. You had to find a way to beat him. So, yeah, that's a tough question. They're all, they're all good in their own right. Very different styles, but uh, just great players. Yeah, they were fun to, to watch and compete against. 
Yeah, well, I'll be sure to have another one of those what ifs for you uh, when you, if we ever have the pleasure to have you on again. But coach, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with us. Obviously, a huge shout out to you as we are such big college tennis fans here at Crack Rackets. Uh, you know, a lifelong, a lifetime of service to the sport of college tennis. So thank you to you. Uh, good luck to you and your Princeton team, and obviously, we wish you all safe, safety, and health throughout all of this until hopefully we get the next college tennis season rocking and rolling once again. That's right. Thank you so much, Alex and um, and Mark and Andrew for what you do and, and keep keep doing what you're doing. We love reading all your posts and uh, your articles. It's, it's we college tennis needs that. So keep at it. Really appreciate what you do and um, and stay safe. Of thanks, course, Billy. go ti- go Tigers, thanks, right? Thanks, Billy. Yep. All right, guys. You take care. Appreciate the time. Yep. See you, take care. Hope all of you enjoyed our conversation with Princeton men's tennis coach Billy Pate, and I want to give a huge shout-out again to him for taking the time to not only speak to the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game of tennis, which, of course, is the point of these getting to the point. I'm going to keep saying point, 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 but is the purpose of these getting to the point episodes. Uh, but, you know, he also dives into just the larger structural issues facing college tennis and is so candid throughout the conversation. So, again, a huge shout-out to him for that, a huge shout-out as I said at the beginning, to Mark and Andrew, who just continue to kill it with the guests they are bringing on here. You know, we had Trip Phillips last week, the UNC men's tennis assistant head coach. We, of course, uh, have had Richard John Menzing, Bjorn Fratangelo, Ivan Barron, Jay Berger, Michael Russell, so many great guests. So if you've missed any of those conversations, be sure to go check out those Getting to the Point uh, episodes on our Mini Break podcast stream. Uh, I think that's a stream, right? Is it a stream? Yeah, you know, we'll call it a stream. A feed, feed. We'll go with feed. That Mini Break podcast feed. Uh, and of course, again, be sure to go support our friends at Aerobar. It really is the nutritious way to start your day. You're going to have the right sort of nutrients. It's going to be a delicious boost as well. And, you know, more importantly, you know you're putting good stuff in your body. And so go to Aerobar.com. Use that promo code CRACKED15. You'll get 15% off your order. And you'll support our friends at Aerobar. We are having so much fun doing these episodes. Hopefully uh, Andrew and Mark enjoyed as much as I do. So a shout out to the two of them as well. But, you know, we've had so many great conversations here at Cracked Rackets over the past couple of weeks. Hopefully you listeners haven't missed any of the action on our Great Shot podcast. Yesterday I had Kristen Gear, the owner of the Tennis One app, CEO of Bleacher as well. Uh, and we talked about, you know, uh, the current state of professional tennis. Of course, our Cracked Rackets team had the chance to go down, do a little bit of play-by-play coverage for the Tennis One app team down in Nicholasville for the Young King Scholarship event. Um, of course, that you know that was a delight uh, for all of us, and so uh, to get the chance to talk to Kristen, not only do I get to say thank you to her, but we talk again about how the Tennis One app hopes to modernize uh, the current fan experience. We talk about how, uh, again, will there be a fan experience in 2020? What's her state of thinking on if tennis can return safely during this season? Of course, then I talk about she's an award-winning, Emmy Award-winning journalist, and it's not every day I get to talk to an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and so, you know, I took advantage of that fact chat with her a little bit about her background. Such a fascinating story. She's really such a lovely woman. Um, I, I, I'm i a big fan of Kristen. I almost said I fell in love with her. I don't want to say that. I feel like that sounds a little bit weird, uh, but I certainly fell in love with doing the interview with her. It was one of my favorites we've done in a while, and I think you'll be able to hear that joy, uh, not only in the, you know my expressions throughout the podcast, but I think she enjoyed it as well. So go check that podcast out on the Great Shot podcast feed. Cracked interview-wise, we are still cycling through all the interviews 
interviews we got in Miami, we got in Nicholasville, and by the way, we've got a nice queue of interviews from prior to that as well. In case he listens, I I feel like I have to say this apology to him. Uh, Brian Cernock, I swear to you, we're not hiding your interview. It will come out. It is in the first of the queue of the cracked interviews, not from Lexington or Nicholasville, but you know, uh, we think that because your interview was so great, it'll hold up a little bit longer than those interviews might. And so, again, be on the lookout for all of those. I think who have we gotten? JC, Steve Johnson, Mackie, Query, Sandgren, Opelka, Nakashima, Hubie Hercats. Uh, you know, I can go on and on and on. We need guys like Cameron Mofid, who worked with the Nick Curious Foundation, Shelby Rogers, Jeannie Bouchard, Jess Pagula. Uh, it, uh, who am I missing here? Marlene Parteau. Um, the point is, there, uh, CC Bellis, there, there are a ton of great interviews in the queue for all of you, so be on the lookout for them. Go subscribe to our YouTube channel right now so you'll just get an immediate notification uh, when those uh, podcast or when those podcasts, those interviews are dropped. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, Great Shot podcast, and Inside Out podcast as you don't want to miss any of the action we've got for you here at Cracked Rackets moving forward. And if you have missed any of it, you can find all of our content on the website, CrackedRackets.com. A shout out to all of you who have already followed us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, if you want those more immediate updates, go do so. I appreciate all of you who reach out to me directly at Great Shot Pod on Twitter. It's always a delight to get to interact with anyone throughout the tennis community, and so really appreciate the, that more and more of you seem, I don't want to say comfortable, but just more, more of you seem willing or apt to do that nowadays. For me, that's the whole point of this podcast, to connect all of us in the tennis community even closer, and so really appreciate all of you doing that. I also always appreciate, as you know, the work of our super producers Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff who have a f- of an any job to do day in day out as they always do shout out to the both of them but with all that being said again a huge thank you to our friends Mark Aerosmith Andrew Golden for setting up another episode of Getting to the Point huge shout out to our guest Billy Pate the Princeton men's tennis head coach shout out to our friends at Midwest Sports as well again go to MidwestSports.com use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off all of your orders but for Mark, Andrew, and Coach Billy Pate, for our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, our super producers, Max Flinkner and Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.